Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 157, The Long March, part one. Picking back up from where I left off last week, by the end of September 1934, the Jiangxi Soviet was a shadow of its former self. Where once it contained millions of inhabitants and was protected by a Red Army, hundreds of thousands strong at its peak, it had been compressed into a half-dozen counties. Chiang Kai-shek and the NRA had conducted a year-long campaign of constriction, with a level of patience not seen since maybe the days of the Roman Empire, advancing only to build new fortified blockhouses and then repeating the process over and over and over again. The results were dire for the communists. They had no way to beat the NRA, and their last attempt to win an open battle had resulted in disaster back in April. It was that direct engagement that convinced the party's leadership that they had to leave, although they hoped against hope until the autumn that something similar to the Manchurian incident would happen and again allow them to stay in the, the home that they had fought for years to build. By the end of September, though, the time had finally come. What remained of the First Front Army, or just the First Army as I'll be calling it, was to break out of the cordon and flee to the west of China proper, away from the KMT home bases. The final destination of the march was an ever-shifting objective that changed along with the army's fortunes. Uh, it wasn't called the Long March at first, but rather the Western March. Uh, that it turned into a sprawling adventure was totally unplanned and not at all desired by the participants. The objective at first was to head to western Hunan Hubei provinces, where Heilong's uh, second army had set up their own base camp. This idea was desirable as it kept them within striking range of several important parts of southern China, of the hub city of Wuhan included. But as we'll get into after the first leg of the march was completed, this proved to be impossible as NRA forces created a new cordon to prevent them from linking up. The objective eventually shifted to the northern part of Sichuan province, where Zhang Gutao's 4th Army had already fled back in late 1932. Uh, we'll get more into his misadventures next week. He had successfully established a new Soviet out there, and it was hoped they could link up and carry on the fight together. The significance of Sichuan province is something I've touched on, but I'll briefly do so again here. First and foremost, it was well away from the Kuomintang centers of power in Nanjing and Shanghai. Second, the seven minor warlords who ran the province were constantly at each other's throats, and the chaos of the province is legendary even among Chinese historians of the period. Third, Sichuan had a large population base and was a healthy breadbasket, so a perfect place to rebuild and keep an army fed. Finally, it has unique geographic features that make it a fortress. The western half of the province is basically an extension of the Tibetan Plateau, so that consisted of long stretches of mountains and gorges cut by the early portions of China's mighty rivers. The real prize, though, was in the more temperate eastern half. That part was dominated by the end of the Tibetan mountains on the western side, but then there arose a ring of mountains that dominated the province. When I say that the place is a breadbasket and population center, I am referring to the gigantic basin that sits in the middle of this great ring of mountains. It's the size of a small country, and it was basically a gigantic castle. The communists wanted it, and even Chiang Kai-shek, when he passed through the area in his efforts to run the Red Army down, immediately grasped the area's potential as a final readout for his own regime. 
Cheng's refusal to give an inch in that province was what prompted the CPC to again change their destination to their last option, northern Shanxi province. This was in the northwest of China's core, south of Inner Mongolia, and on the fringes of regular Chinese politics. That they were forced into such a hard-scrabble patch of the country is a sign that the march should not be taken as a 100% success, although it did ultimately save the CPC from extermination. But first, they had to get up, get out, and get there. And without a single inkling of what was in store for them, some 85,000 regular soldiers, 15,000 party officials, and around 20 to 30,000 guerrilla fighters formed up to embark on the breakout west. Older children would follow along as porters and bagmen. The non-combatants would march between two columns of fighters with additional vanguards and rearguards on the front and back, forming kind of a square with the non-combatants in the middle there. Among the non-combatants would be the military commanders and logistical troops, as well as the Zhangji Soviet's government and the CPC leadership itself, reduced in size but otherwise functioning as normal. It would be on its good days when it had proper numbers a moving nation. They left behind a rearguard of about 6,000 men, maybe more, to tie down the NRA as long as they could, as well as 20,000 sick and wounded. Mao, who at this point was not in political favor and was cut out of the decision-making process, was a little annoyed when his brother Zetan was selected to stay with the rearguard. Remember from last week that the CPC leadership had abandoned Shanghai and joined with the Zhangji Soviet, so Bo Gu, he of the 28 Bolsheviks, was the one actually running the show. While Zetan would hold out with his comrades until the spring of next year, he was eventually captured and executed. Tragically, any children too young for the march west would be left in the care of peasant families. Due to the fortunes of the civil war against the Kuomintang and the international one against the Japanese, the CPC would be unable to do a search for the kids left behind until 1949, 15 years later. In the chaos of war and with no documentation available, the families really couldn't be located. The children of the marchers were ultimately never found. Mao himself would lose a two-year-old son this way, left behind in the care of peasants, and vanished when he came back for him all those years later. So yeah, the march definitely left some scars on the future leaders of the nation in more ways than one. Now, the Long March is one of those events that, even after taking myth-making into account, is really hard to overstate. The physical dimensions were enormous, with the army covering 5,600 miles in a year's time. There isn't really anything to compare it to. I mean, you could go back to ancient days when Xenophon led his army 2,000 miles out of the Persian Empire in four months, but this isn't even the same ballpark here. And these were not easy miles to be marched either. The first leg of the trip would pass over the thick, forested mountains and hills of southern China before giving way to the full-on jungle versions once they hit Guizhou and Yunnan provinces. When they were forced to veer north across western Sichuan, they passed through terrain that, as I mentioned a moment ago, was basically an extension of Tibet. And once they passed the mountains there, it was freezing swamps and then finally an arid expanse for the last part. They would go through areas where even the warlords didn't venture, places occupied by ethnic minorities such as the Li and the Tibetans, who didn't much like the Chinese, who in years past had been oppressive towards them. And these minorities didn't make many distinctions about their political affiliations. 
they usually didn't have the benefit of decent roads and mainly got dirt tracks at best, or almost as often, just poorly traveled hiking trails. And it was done overwhelmingly on foot, and even the CPC leadership rarely rode on horses or pack animals. In fact, beasts of burden were so rare that most equipment, even the heavier stuff, was lugged around using human power. Personal belongings were carried either in knapsacks or on shoulder bars. The men lacked boots and relied on cloth sandals, which consisted of a piece of cloth embedded into a tied platform of straw or bamboo. They were flimsy as hell and would dissolve in wet conditions, which was all the time, so the overriding cause of despair for most marchers was a lack of foot protection. The vistas are everything you can imagine from a movie that takes place in East Asia. Dramatic peaks, gorges cut by rivers, oh, and those rivers are usually moving at a rapid clip along the rapidly changing elevations, uh, there were thick blankets of fog, uh, there's terrible heat and humidity, broken only by piercing cold in the high mountains, primitive bridge crossings, uh, all the exotic cliches were there. Which is appropriate, because the Long March is one of the most cinematic events I'll be covering in the first two seasons of this podcast. And I'll say it again, it seems like something out of a movie. But tens of thousands of people actually lived it, braving the danger, being chased by the NRA at every step. Scores of battles were fought. Every day brought pressures down onto the Red Army. And while only a slim handful made it to the very end, they formed a new elite core of the CPC and the Chinese Red Army. Their legend spread far and wide through China and was on the lips of every peasant who hoped for a better day. Out there, somewhere, were the Long Marchers, men who had endured the worst the world could throw at them and lived to tell the tale. Never mind that the communists ended the march weaker than they ever had been before. They survived it. They could survive whatever else came their way. And afterwards, people came to really believe in them, not because of how forceful or correct their message was, but because they had endured to continue spreading it. It was a feat more impressive than any other in China, and honestly worthy of the myth-making that followed it. On October 16, 1934, the army set out. The forces waiting for them in the southwest of the Soviet were from Guangdong, who were Chen Jitang's men. They manned their blockhouses, but like other warlord troops, had little investment in the fight. Chen himself had been playing a dangerous game in conducting trade with the communists under the table while manning his section of the cordon, and while he wouldn't tolerate any communists in Guangdong, he saw them as useful overall. As long as the Red Army was in the field, Cheng couldn't focus solely on the warlords, like him. Chen was open to a deal, and Zhao Enlai handled the negotiations. A quarter million dollars in silver made its way to Chen, and he allowed the First Army to pass with only a token show of resistance, after which Chen withdrew his troops 12 miles to give the column the right of way. One thing to note, the CPC had gathered its cash in silver to Jiangxi, so they were marching with a lot of precious metal to fund their expenses. The rearguard troops went into overdrive, appearing in every sector of the front they could, moving around to create the impression that the full army was still present. It worked, and even into early November, the main body of the KMT was unaware about what had happened. It was actually an astonishing intelligence failure on the part of the Kuomintang forces. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of men would sit in their blockhouses while their careful advance continued. 
Newspapers would run stories of communist cities falling, but nobody paid any mind to the 100,000-odd person 1st Army marching through the backcountry trails westward. For the first three days, it was four hours on the road, four hours rest, although that would get a bit more grueling as time went on. A smaller detachment broke off from the main force and entered northern Guangdong to convince the KMT that they were headed more southwards than west before reuniting on November 16th in southern Hunan, while other NRA elements became convinced that the main target was actually Changsha in northeastern Hunan. An account by a veteran of those early days described, We often marched at night to avoid air raids. Night marching is wonderful if there is a moon and a gentle wind blowing. When no enemy troops were near, Whole companies would sing and others would answer. If it was a black night and the enemy far away, we made torches from pine branches or frayed bamboo, and then it was truly beautiful. When at the foot of a mountain we could look up and see a long column of lights coiling like a fiery dragon up the mountainside. From the summit we could look in both directions and see miles of torches moving forward like a wave of fire. A rosy glow hung over the whole route of the march. The account of the daytime was less positive, and the KMT would send in bombers to hit them from the air. The Red Army had few defenses against that, and the best the men could do was take what cover they could and hope for the best. Wounded men were left in the care of local peasants with a little money to get them back going again. The hope was that they could continue to spread the message of communism in the areas they were left in and organize new Soviets. This didn't exactly pan out, but communist veterans and guerrilla fighters would remain a presence in the South even after the Long March concluded. One reason why the Red Army had a relatively easy go of it during this first leg of the trip was on account of the Nanjing government's relations with the southern provinces. They marched right on through the borderlands of provinces controlled by warlords on bad terms with Chiang Kai-shek. It's conjectured by some that Chiang actually hoped that the Red Army would get into a fight with one or more of the warlord groups and his enemies would mutually weaken each other. As time passed, though, this hope faded, and especially the Guangxi clique stood aside while the Red Army passed through westwards. Chiang, while frustrated to some extent, was also still giddy with the possibilities. The Red Army was marching clear across regions of the country most hostile to the Nanjing government, and this offered the golden opportunity that I've been talking about the past few weeks to extend government power into these regions. The First Army made surprisingly good progress across southern China on that first leg, before being forced into its first real-deal battle at the southern reaches of the Jiang River in northern Guangxi province in late November, early December 1934. The communist recollection of the battle was one of terrible desperation. The Jiang River was one of those rapidly flowing mountain rivers that didn't have many viable places to cross, so it offered defenders an easy perch to set up and mow down attempts to cross via boat. Luckily for the communists, the first warlord they encountered at the river crossings was Bai Zhongzhi, who you should know as the one of the leading figures of the Guangxi clique and one of Chang's biggest enemies among the warlords. He allowed his troops a few skirmishes with the Red Army for show, and then he stood aside, even leaving a pontoon bridge to speed them on their way. Obviously, this was fantastic news, and the first echelon of the Red Army made it across no problem. Then, some Hunan troops showed up, and they had a fight on their minds. The first army was crossing the Jiang River from south to north, and all of a sudden, KMT-aligned troops were descending on them mid-crossing. Meanwhile, Chang and the NRA commanders had caught on to what the CPC was doing, and their aircraft were fully committed to bombing the slow-moving and vulnerable columns 
while the majority of the marchers were still waiting for their chance to cross the river. Suddenly, the Xi'an crossings went from being a cakewalk to a storm of bullets and bombs. Thanks to fierce counterattacks coming from the north, the Red Army was deprived of their easy pontoon bridge crossing and, without a lot of options, started using whatever craft were available to cross the river, whether they were commandeered riverboats or even makeshift rafts. The waters of the Jiang were stormed over the course of November 25th to December 3rd, resulting in a devastating headlong battle as the communists threw everything they could into taking a new beachhead from where they could safely ford the river. The desperation was not unwarranted, as KMT-aligned warlords coalesced from every direction and threatened to encircle them. By November 30th, Bai Chongji returned to the field to fight against the First Army. The change of heart was a result of other KMT troops fighting in the area and making his excuses for not fighting the communists increasingly implausible. There is some debate over how this battle played out. Uh, some accounts state that fully half of the Red Army was cut down in the river crossing, with the main body of soldiers dropping from 85,000 to around 30 to 40,000 over just a few days. But in the Junyi leadership conference that happened shortly thereafter, there wasn't really a lot of discussion of uh, that big of a disaster playing out. And by that point, the First Army was still moving with a great deal of confidence and cohesion. An army does not lose a full 50% or more of its strength in one battle and remain in fighting shape afterwards. And while nationalist reports indicated that the fighting was as fierce as the communists later claimed, those reports were coming from warlord troops who may have been a little suspect, especially since the main NRA forces were still 150 miles away. Their tardiness being explained by, you know, maybe Chang, you know, just being sure to take in all the sights of southern China that he had been missing for the past six years. Also to, you know, take control of the, these areas. There is conjecture that the sudden drop in numbers didn't happen so dramatically as the CPC later made it out to be. I stated that the army had made surprisingly good progress across southern China, but it wasn't easily one progress. The NRA's Air Force constantly bombed the exposed columns, which caused terrible casualties, and while decisive engagements hadn't happened up to that point, smaller detachments of KMT-aligned troops constantly harried the Red Army, wearing it down through attrition. And also keep in mind, as I mentioned a moment ago, if you were wounded and couldn't keep up with the columns, you were left behind in the care of someone who would take you in, thus dropping you out of the march. In a normal combat situation, they'd be evacuated and kept on hand for when they recovered, but there wasn't anything normal about this situation. Combined with the physical adversities I've already covered, the situation seemed hopeless to many, and desertion ate away at the Red Army the most. This was especially true for the tens of thousands of guerrilla fighters, who largely faded into the wilderness along the way. It's virtually impossible for the full core of 85,000 committed soldiers to have made its way to Guangxi intact, and I suspect that the memory of the battle was used to cover the more ignominious reasons for the decline in the Red Army's numbers. Dead heroes are far more useful than living deserters in the imagination. The fighting along the river was almost certainly fierce and bloody, with thousands of dead, just not tens of thousands. I can only imagine the Guangxi troops especially put up enough of a fight so they can make excuses about trying their best to Chang at a later date, but nothing more. For Chang's part, he acknowledged the fight as a tactical victory, as whatever was the case, the Red Army had been bled pretty badly, but also realized that a golden opportunity to encircle and completely destroy the First Army had slipped through his fingers. 
It didn't help that the Hunan warlords afterwards took up defensive positions to block the First Army from linking up with Heilong's Second Red Army operating to the northeast. While the Hunan troops were successful in this, their stationary positions allowed the First Army to consider options elsewhere. And that isn't to say that being blocked from moving into Hunan wasn't a setback for the CPC, though. Upon crossing the Jiang River, the initial objective to link up with Heilong's Second Army was actually in sight. The communist leaders were well aware that they couldn't just keep marching across China forever, and they needed to tell the rank and file that there was some kind of a plan in play here. The whole point of forcing the Jiang River was to link up with Heilong and conclude the march. This proved impractical, though, as Chang's own forces were catching up and helping bar the way to the northeast. By this time, Bo Gu's leadership was hitting rock bottom, as the difficulties suffered on the march were starting to wear on everyone. Finally, Mao stepped back in and demanded that they give up on linking with He's army and instead swing northwest and go deep into Guizhou. They would be heading onwards to Sichuan and Zhangguotao instead. Upon entering Guizhou province, the Red Army had a fairly easy time of it. Guizhou was terribly isolated, something its local warlord clique liked to maintain. Uh, this also meant its armies were far from battle-tested and among the most poorly equipped in China proper. In fact, the only real fighting they had seen in the province were the local warlords squabbling with each other, and the province had only been united under one clique since earlier in the year, so conditions there were not at all stable. Just a little side note, a lot of why the Red Army was able to survive this trip was because they were passing through areas of China that had largely been untouched by the larger civil war, and were not used to huge bodies of battle-hardened troops just, you know, passing through. The First Army was now totally committed to linking up with Zhang's Fourth Army in northern Sichuan. Again, more on him next week. Zhang had been doing rather well for himself, occupying the northern quarter of the province and raising an army between 80 to 100,000 strong. His Soviet seemed to be prospering, and once combined, they could try and make a play at the verdant heart of Sichuan. As it turned out, navigating the mountains separating Guangxi and Guizhou provinces was more of a challenge than the actual fights immediately ahead of them. As one soldier vividly recounted, our most bitter trials came when we had to pass along narrow and dangerous mountain paths, through narrow passes, across narrow bridges, or swim icy streams. At such times, our advanced troops slowed down the rear ones who would take one step forward and then stand around for ten. We could not move forward and we could not sit down and rest. Some men fell asleep as they stood. Other times we marched through storms with a fierce wind and rain whipping our bodies. Under such circumstances, we would not use our torches, and the paths were slippery and dangerous. Sometimes we covered only a few li at night, just a note, a li is about a third of a mile, and soaked through, had to sleep out in the open. Then there was Old Mountain on the Guangxi border, where we went up a mountain so steep that I could see the footsole of the man ahead of me. Steps had been carved out of the stone face of the mountain. They were as high as a man's waist. Political workers went up and down the columns, encouraging our struggling men and helping the sick and wounded. News came down the line that our advance columns were facing a sheer cliff and that there was no way of getting the horses up. After a time, there came the order to where we were to continue climbing at daybreak. The path was no more than two feet wide at any point, and even if one succeeded in lying down to rest, he could not turn over without rolling down the mountainside. There were great jutting boulders everywhere, and even the path was covered with sharp stones. 
Since there was nothing else to do, I folded my blanket, placed it beneath me, and tried to curl up on the path. I was so weary, I fell asleep. Sometime during the night, the cold awoke me. I wrapped the blanket around me and tried to roll myself into a little round ball, but I still could not sleep. I lay and watched the twinkling stars in the sky, and they looked like jade stones on a black curtain. The black peaks towering around me were like menacing giants. We seemed to be at the bottom of a well. Up and down the path I saw many small fires lit by men, also awakened by the cold. They were sitting around and talking in low voices. Apart from their faint voices, the silence was so great that I could hear it. I was sometimes near, sometimes far away, sometimes loud and sometimes faint, and at other times like spring silkworms eating mulberry leaves. I listened intently, and it sounded like a complaining mountain spring, then like the distant murmur of the ocean. The next morning, my group finally reached the sheer cliff that had stopped us the night before. It was Thunder God Rock, a solid cliff of stone jutting into the sky at about 90 degree angle. Stone steps, no more than a foot wide, had been carved up its face, and up this we had to go without anything to hold on to. Horses with broken legs lay about the foot of the cliff. Our medical units suffered the most because the sick and wounded had to get off the stretchers and either crawl or be pushed, dragged, or carried up. The women comrades of the medical corps ceaselessly comforted and held the men in their care. Old Mountain was the most difficult mountain we had climbed so far. After that experience, the Guizhou provincial troops weren't that big of a deal, and the first army marched across the province with great speed. Cheng had deployed some of his core NRA troops, but they were distracted by a diversionary strike towards Guizhou's capital city, and those troops raced west to defend it, while the first army continued north. The objective now was the city of Zunyi, the second biggest in Guizhou province and just south of the Sichuan border. The walled city was taken practically without a fight when a group of local soldiers were captured and convinced to defect. Or they just bribed them, the stories defer. The captured-slash-defected garrison troops took a detachment of communist ones posing as local soldiers to the town gates and reported they were on the retreat from the Red Army. When the gatekeepers let them in, the ruse was revealed and the Red Army seized the gate with soldiers behind them pouring in. The First Army had finally managed to take a population center of some importance, and they used the opportunity afforded by it to call a pause in the march. For several weeks, the communists would shelter there, recruiting to replenish their numbers and building their supplies back up. This would also be the first time since the start of the march that the leadership could sit down and have a proper meeting. This was fairly unusual, even before their great undertaking, as the higher-ups had been scattered across the country for years. Having even the majority of them in the same room was quite something. As it turned out, they kept quiet when it came to what was discussed during the conference, which took place over January 15th to the 17th of 1935. In fact, it would only be years after the Civil War that it was even acknowledged that a meeting had took place. The reason for the secrecy is not convoluted. The leaders went at each other for days, hurling recriminations at each other. The situation wasn't great. The army had suffered badly from attrition, and the attempt to swing to the northeast and into Hunan to link up with the second army had ended in disaster. The march could not be allowed to fail, as so much of the CPC's apparatus was marching along with it. The party could be destroyed if they lost momentum, and everything could fall to pieces. This is where Mao stepped in again. He hadn't been a huge factor in the march up until recently, as he was still politically isolated thanks to the young 28 Bolsheviks faction possessing the reins of power. His last position had been the head of government of a Soviet republic that no longer existed on any map. 
but his opponents, Bogu and Otto Braun, the German advisor sent by the Comintern, were the ones in charge and ergo bore the responsibility of the March's failures so far. That and how the Fifth Encirclement campaign that actually led to the March had played out. Mao posited that his enemies were foolish in opting for fixed defensive battles all through 1934, and that his own theories on mobile light infantry fighting should have been adopted. He dragged them for wasting men and resources fighting hopelessly pitched battles while heading west. He even brought up the failure to join with the mutineer 19th Root Army during the encirclement campaign as evidence of their incompetence. Finally, Mao dragged the young Bolsheviks over their inexperience, demanding to know why they should lead what was purely a military operation. Their training was an orthodox Marxist theory, not an overland trek across the country. Mao was joined by Zhu Di and Zhao Enlai, along with other older figures who were fed up with the wavering leadership of the youths. Bo himself was at the end of his tether, and Braun was a German who didn't speak Chinese, so their defense wasn't an energetic one. Bo accepted stepping back as leader, allowing Mao and Zhao to take the leading positions, roles that they would not relinquish for the rest of their lives, which wasn't the intent. The conference was an ad hoc one attended by only 18 leaders. They probably didn't think they were handing Mao the keys to communist China, but upon the end of the march and after they had settled into their new home, Mao just kept on leading and a new debate wasn't really raised. The participants of the conference voted to support Mao's positions, codified in a series of resolutions that included a revision of intent. The very idea to link up with the Second Army became flawed conservative thinking. Heading northwest into Sichuan to link up with Zhang Gutao's Fourth Army in the northern reaches of that province became the correct revolutionary thought. The turn northwards marked a new stage in the Long March, one that became even more fraught with danger than the journey they had been on already, because with the NRA hot on their heels, they'd have to improvise their plans yet again soon after resuming their trek. And the northern part of the march promised even greater challenges to the endurance of the communists, because even as they would get away from Chang, in doing so, they were forced to journey into the distant fringes of China, lands foreign to them. They would enter hostile locales and, more importantly, hostile geography. Because if you think the Chinese wilderness sounds bad so far, for the communists it was going to get a whole lot worse. Look forward to worsening conditions as we pick up the long march again next week, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Mm -hmm.